All right, live from New York, it is training underscore data. And today we have a really special guest uh, in the booth uh, with us. And uh, I'd like to uh, extend a warm welcome uh, to Hillary Mason. She is the founder of Fast Forward Labs, which is the, now part of Cloudera, where she served as the GM for machine learning until late uh, September 2019. Uh, she's also a data scientist in residence at Excel Partners. She's a co-founder of Hack. Uh, ny.org and the former chief scientist at Bitly. Uh, Hillary has a, a lot of accolades, uh, accolades uh, but among them she was named Forbes uh, 40 Under 40, Person to Watch in 2011, and Fast Company named her one of the top 100 most creative people in business. Welcome to the show, Hillary. Thank you so much. And quick, say something really creative. <laughs> you know, I was actually 99 out of 100 on that list, so I'm not sure it really counts. So it's like somewhat creative. Somewhat creative. All right, someone who is also creative, he was like 101. Debatable. We, we can't confirm <laughs> that, but we're going to go with it, is uh, Nick Weir. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Hillary, you've spent a lot of time talking about the current state of the art in uh, ML, but you've also started to speak much more about how these technologies can be applied at an enterprise level for corporations that are lo looking to move beyond basic prototypes into real product development and showing results. You know, at a high level, like, what are some of the challenges around corporations adopting these technologies? Is it a classic sort of, you know, Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm problem where people just don't understand how to use it? Or is there perhaps uh, multiple culprits uh, at play? So that's a very good question, and we could discuss that for the entire time we have. So I'll try and pick a few. Um, in general, I think there are technical and product challenges how they collaborate with each other and their uh, maybe some specific work they're doing, this, that alone is a big shift. Well, and the tools have changed so much that um, traditionally those folks are used to using smaller, cleaner data sets, yes. and now you have access to messier, larger data sets, and can you use those to inform against the same problems? Yes, but also new ones. Yeah. Um, and you want to make sure that they're positioned to recognize and pursue those new things as well. And so... Like kind of going back to when you started fast forward, did, did you just, was that one of the motivations uh, to start that? Was to kind of seeing this gap and realizing how do we get around this or enable companies to move forward and maybe bring some of that cultural change with you? That's about half right. I would yeah. say when I started fast forward, I did start it to solve two related problems that may not seem related on the surface. The first one was to figure out a new mechanism for actual applied research um, in industry. Um, and specifically in machine learning, it was an area, and we could talk about this for a long time as well, there are many challenges in academic research. There are challenges in uh, you know, corporate research. Um, but I thought we had an interesting approach to applied research where um, you know, we pursue our own research agenda and it would be um, funded by our customers who would then have to get enough value out of it that, that they would continue to pay for it. And then we also had an advising service uh, where I initially thought when I started the company we would be doing technical work where people would come to us and say, here's my hardest problem. It is how, what algorithm do I use for this or can you go through the math with me and can we whiteboard, can we do code review? We did uh, about 50% of our work ended up being that. But I realized about a few months in even um, that actually the technical problem was uh, certainly necessary but not sufficient to solve the business problem. And everything around the technical problem 
uh, which you can't solve, by the way, if you don't understand the technology. So it can't be done independently. But that's where the real challenge is. So that's where these cultural organizational process issues really emerge. And like what just in, in just unpack that a little bit, like what were some like ways to have quick hits? You know, because I know for us, you know, we I just think about our very niche focus that we have in the geospatial analytics domain, you know, we'll put out uh, blogs, we'll have our GitHub repositories plus training. And only after a couple times we'll, of walking people through maybe our code base with an open data set that we've also put out, do people do light, the lights start, finally start to come on. And people realize, okay, I get what you're doing. I understand what this research is. It takes a fair amount of time. And I'm, I'm curious just in the, just the wide breadth of companies you worked with, what were some ways to maybe get some quick movement in groups that we're maybe starting from scratch in terms of how to think about this from a more complex data science work. Yeah, that's a great question because um, you know a lot of people come to it with a ton of enthusiasm, um, but they often want to start with something hard uh, when it would actually be more advantageous to start with something valuable. And so a, a lot of the work we do is really helping people understand how to go from a messy business opportunity or look at a product. Um, and think about what problems might even be worth solving, and then to build the stupid, simple, first thing you could possibly build to validate that it's worth doing anything. Um, and then from there, you can think about where to invest more deeply. And so if, if someone listening is thinking about, well, where do I get some of those quick wins? And by the way, um, everybody needs to have those first wins in order to be able to do those more interesting things at all. And that's just the nature of every company and organization. Um, so the places you look are the places where you know uh, you are, you know, spending money, or you know, you have some other kind of cost associated with a process or something that can be informed by or automated in part by a fairly straightforward analysis. Um, and that is limited in that the ROI on that will only ever be equal to the amount you are spending today. So one example I can give from a customer, the first thing they did was they took a um, content enrichment process that was done entirely manually, and they built a machine learning system to suggest uh, labels for metadata labels, and then the humans would approve them or edit them and fix them. And that took their cost for running this globally across their entire content base every year from about $7 million down to about half a million dollars. Um, huge win yeah, initially. That's awesome. But uh, it's only six and a half million dollars, yep. right? Like you can actually do better than that. Um, but that's where you start is finding the, that first kind of opportunity where you, you have a good intuition that you're going to be able to create that kind of value or save that kind of value. And then from there, you can start to go into things with no clear return on the investment because it's new. And, I, and I'm curious, as, as Fast Forward Labs just evolved and then was uh, acquired and became a part of Cloudera, did that... Did this help just with scale, being able to reach out more customers, maybe do um, longer-term projects that help uh, unpack maybe more complex uh, searches for better ROI or things like that? Yeah, all of that is true. Um, being able to work with customers globally, being able to work with very large customers, being able to work on uh, things that are very complex and maybe multi-year initiatives. Um, yeah, all of that is part of being a larger enterprise. But I will say that fundamentally the type of work didn't change too much. And the type of work really can be thought of in a few buckets. Um, and actually I'll just vastly simplify it and say that it is um, 
going from that business product opportunity to a technical problem statement, which, by the way, is the hardest thing to do well, and then going from that technical problem statement through the experimental process to validate and define the best possible approaches. And then the third piece is actually having created a thing, deploying it, maintaining it, and making sure it improves over time, right? And so that vastly simplified kind of work has been consistent, whether we've worked with tiny little companies or you know major global enterprise. But the beginning parts of that process can often be really hard to sell to groups that aren't familiar with doing data science, how data science yes, workflows true. go, that kind of thing. So how, what have you found to be effective ways to make the case that someone shouldn't start with the really big, hard problem? Um, yeah, I mean, it is a challenge to sell, um, and it's a challenge to sell for many reasons. So one is that people, um, you know, may have an impression of what AI and machine learning and data science are capable of um, that is not necessarily backed up by the reality of the technology. And so you're trying to basically talk them down from intelligent robots um, to something that's tractable. And of course, the tractable thing ends up looking super boring. It's, um, you know, a better <laughs> estimation of some model. And um, so there's that bit, which is really, you know, taking away the like, um, the flashiness and trying to show them under the covers how it how it can work. The second thing is that um, folks are often unwilling to pay for something that doesn't have a working deliverable. Um, and maybe this was a challenge. I mean, it, it, it's definitely a challenge if anyone listening is in the data science or data science consulting space. Um, I'm sure you'll run into the same thing where customers want to pay for code but the code is not the hard part. Yeah. Um, and so what we did instead was build packages that sort of build in the, the first part. Um, so if you want to buy the second part, you want to buy the artifact, uh, you have to go through that first part. And the reason you have to do that is that most of the time, even if you are you know, a world-class data scientist, at the beginning, before you've done any work, the problem you think you want to solve is the wrong one. And the reality of the practice of this is that your work is generally to figure out what actually is business value and then try to solve a data science problem and then realize you can't solve it or can't solve it at the level of precision and recall you want. And then you pick an easier problem and then you try and solve that. And then you do that four or five times and eventually you've solved something and it is useful. Um, but explaining that process to people who are not deeply familiar with the practice um, can be a challenge. And I think it's because people tend to lump this practice in with things like that look very similar, like software engineering, but it's a fundamentally different practice and requires a different process and a different kind of management and investment. You just described our lab in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> people for the first year were like, what are you, so the thing you want to do, you just said you can't solve, so why are you still around? So there's <laughs> It, I mean, even in our... Even I mean, now. Even, <laughs> even in the first year. Well, and just to tie back to one of your earlier comments as well, like when we will put out uh, a data set for, with the hopes of then having uh, a public challenge along with our own sort of applied research on top of that, there's usually a lot of interest in just hurrying up and get data out there and mm -hmm. then hurry up and getting a challenge out there. And yet what we always have, we find ourselves constantly repeating, and Nick can talk to you ad nauseum on our most recent one, is so much of the effort goes into just figuring out what does it even make sense to structure a problem around. And it hasn't really been, we've been at this now for three years, and it hasn't really been until the last like year or so where we're finally in a place where we're like, okay, we understand this is the data format. These are generally the end users that want to use it. This is generally the output they're looking for. 
if you would have said at the when we were first starting this it would take that long to get there i would have said no way we'll, we'll have this figured out we'll move on to something else so it's it's surprising it's it's so dichotomous how fast this tech moves and at the same time how iterative it actually has to be in in terms of finding real value for the end user. I'm not at all surprised to hear you say that because that describes applied research so well. Um, And the applied thing is the important thing, right? So it's the value for that end user. Um, Whereas if you look, say, at more academic research, the value is not in the application. The value is in the novelty um, of your technique and approach. And so you just have a very different, uh, you know, goal for what you're pursuing there. All right. And then one of the things that, you know, we were just thinking about in, in advance of this conversation was we're starting to see uh, more organizations, big corporations, both tech companies as well as just incumbent companies starting to think about this problem in a more aggressive way, whether that means uh, setting up joint ventures or setting up collaborations with with uh, folks like yourselves, or or things to that effect, you know, how do you think? Like, how does this balance those types of efforts balance with, like, just companies just running their own open source projects or trying to pull open open source code? It, it seems like there there's an acknowledgement this is hard. It can't just be quickly spun up and developed. And yet, we're also seeing companies say, "Well, we we want to try to hurry up and contribute to open source." How does this all balance out? So I think there are a few threads that may be getting conflated in this question. So one of them is really how are companies thinking about actually creating something useful with data science, machine learning, technology? The second one is what tools and systems are they using to get there? Um, And people do often think they are the same problem or think that technology is the way they're going to get there or they look at say you know what Google is doing internally or Uber is doing or Airbnb and they say well I need to copy that Um, but unfortunately you know at least in my experience you can't it won't work for you Um, so so there are a few interesting threads there and when people think about this I think uh, what's clear for it then is true for everyone is that there is value to be found, and we are at this point, you know, it's 2019. This is not an immature practice. Um, we know that it is, like, even if all of the hype around it went away tomorrow, there would still be people doing this work because it's useful. Um, so that's very comforting, at least for all of our future, you know, job career success. Um, but the second thing to realize is that uh the tooling is a mess, right? And the third thing is that there's no one way to solve this problem organizationally and from an investment point of view. So people think, okay, I want to do this stuff. Um, maybe I should invest in a technology or we should do something in open source, and that seems to be the way people do it. Um, but it, unless it's part of a larger strategy, um, I don't tend to think that will work out very well. So do you tend to see the approaches that um, companies are taking in terms of developing their own methods as, as is being done right now as kind of changing in the future? Different groups are going to go their own separate ways in terms of how they structure their research? or I think there are a few things that are consistent, um, and the tooling has yet to catch up. So one of the things that I actually find really exciting about the practice right now is that if you look at the way we actually build these systems and do this work, like it is a mess. There is absolutely no way if we think 15 years from now that we're gonna be doing the same stuff we're doing today. 
There's also very little consistency from company to company, and that's at both the technical level and the the sort of even the job description level. So if you go read a software engineer job description at any startup or at Google, you know, or Facebook or whatever it may be, they're more or less the same. You're managed the same way. Your career looks kind of the same. Uh, you sit in the same place in the organization. You're probably going to have a CTO or a VP of engineering, and you know they they report to the CEO, and this is all consistent. If you look at it for data science or machine learning, it's a mess. Like there's you know job descriptions are all over the place, organizational positions are all over the place, and then you go to the tooling, and that's all over the place. So I think that um, you know there's no one right answer yet, but I suspect we will over the next. I'll say five years start to converge on something. It will probably not look exactly like what we use today. Um, and it may acknowledge some, let's say, uh, you know, the fact that data science machine learning as a practice actually tends to be lumped together. And we've been talking about it this way. But it has many different kinds of outputs that might be might require different kinds of workflows and tools eventually, like reporting. Notebooks are great for that. Um, but building sort of critical streaming real-time processors, maybe notebooks not so great for that. Um, anyway, I'm very excited about seeing where this all converges. And I think that everyone is opinionated based on their own context and their own you know, sort of practices and what works for them. And some people are creating open source around that or contributing to other projects. Uh, that's all amazing because that's how we're going to get there. Uh, but I don't think uh, that our practice in five years is going to look at all. Well, going to look, and we're still going to use Bash, but like, <laughs> and Python and R and all that. But it won't, uh, hopefully it will have progressed. So if I can ask you to speculate then based on your opinions, what do you think this is going to look like? How do you think teams will structure data science or companies? Oh, well, so I think from the, well, from the human side of things, yeah. um, one of the challenges people run into today is that nobody in the leadership group can manage data science because they don't have an empathy for the technical capabilities or the skills or the career paths of the people who do the work. And the manager of a data science team is way harder to find than the data scientist. Right? Yeah, amen to that. Oh, sorry, that was a bias. <laughs> oh, sorry, please keep going. Um, well, it's just because, and I, I think you clearly get this, but um, you know, they have to understand not just the technical practice and how to hire the right people and grow them in their careers and how to do it in this chaotic world, by the way, without consistency, how to make good technical decisions about how the team is going to work together and collaborate and collaborate and interface with the rest of the organization. But they also have to be peers at the leadership level where they can understand the business priorities and the vision and then translate that into the prioritization for the technical work. So that capability, I think we will see um, either as a standalone leadership team component, or we'll see more and more CTOs or even um, sort of, uh, you know, line of business leaders or COOs pick up that under become more data driven, pick up that understanding of how to invest and manage the capability. So that's step one. Um, then you have to decide, you know, sort of what is the output of the data work you're doing? Does it live under some sort of, is it reporting? Is it under like the finance sort of piece of the business? Is it product data science? Is it R&D? If so, how do all the pieces fit together? There's no one right answer there. I have many opinions if you want to talk through those, um, but you have to figure all that out. And then you get into the tooling layer. So 
where does the data live? Where does the compute live? Where does the metadata live? How is all of that managed? How is the process managed? Do your data scientists actually still have to manage the cognitive load of understanding what kind of compute their code is running against? Um, today you do. So, you know, I can run something on my laptop and get, you know, a little annoyed when it crashes and then think, okay, you know, I'll SSH over here and I'll make a tunnel and whatever. I'm old, so I may be, you know. <laughs> um, That's how I we may operate. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I am managing that cognitive load as a data scientist. It doesn't make sense to me personally that that's something that we should put on data scientists in the future. Yeah. Like, you should just be able to say, here's the analysis I want to run, and it should, you know, do it for you, and it should, you should be able to, you know, have a pretty smart cost-benefit around, you know, do I spin up 100 GPUs, or is that going to really, you know, make my boss unhappy? Um, or am I willing to wait two weeks for the yeah. results? Um, so I think there are many things like that. And then, you know, when we think about how something goes into production, there's a bunch of work there, how it gets uh, monitored and maintained over time. And the reality, by the way, of how most people do this right now is that somebody looks at something in production and it looks weird. And so they think, oh, I should go look at that and fix it yeah. again. That's not great. Ooh. <laughs> That's suboptimal. <laughs> yes. So I, I think there are so many opportunities here. Um, I'm pretty excited to see where it all goes. And to, to go to your the first part of your point, which is to have not just the, the manager of a data science team, but more broadly, just to have more product managers more engaged with these teams and understanding what's coming out of them. You know, one of the things that we've run into is trying to figure out what is the right level of technical technical data, or in this case, thinking about the person, technical acumen that's necessary to explain the value of work that's going on. And I, I'm curious if you have thoughts around that, because for a lot of product managers, they know it's kind of important. They're really aware of the hype. You have the danger of hype cycle burnout. Mm -hmm. And so if they don't, if their expectations aren't met out of the gate, they're like, you know, whatever, I'm not going to waste time on this. I'm curious, how do you bring perhaps non-technical people that are still going to have to integrate this work into products into this conversation? So this is a great question. Um, and it's one that um, I'm very opinionated about. Because when you think about it, the product managers are the ones who are usually best positioned to recognize where the opportunities are for data science and machine learning in their own product. So they're the people who are talking to customers all the time. They're imagining the future of where the product is going. They're prioritizing. And much of their prioritization is going to be based on an understanding of what's possible. And they need to have that. And here's the other place where I may be a bit of a contrarian, but I actually don't think, I think we are doing many product managers a disservice by saying it is too complex for them to understand at a conceptual level how this works. I think they can understand it just fine. Um, and if they can understand how to design a product with software, which is a thing they themselves may not write, they can certainly understand how to design pieces of that software that revolve around and are derived from data. Um, and I don't think it's, it's too much to ask that. Um, however, we don't do a good job of getting those two pieces of knowledge in the same workflow or same brain to make decisions right now. And by that, I mean the product manager's focus on the product, the roadmap, and the customer, combined with the data scientist's focus on what the data can be useful for, what data should be collected, what's highly accurate, what's going to be a little less accurate but still may be useful. 
Um, and when this works, you see really brilliant things come out of it. And so I'll give an example from a Google product I have no affiliation with but love very much, which is the Google Photos search, right? So this is an area where labeling objects and photos there um, evidently not good enough to plop those labels in neon letters right on top of the photo, but it is good enough for search, right? And that obviously requires a product manager who understands how this works. So thinking about how we get to that, you either are partnering data scientists with their product managers at an early point in the product discovery and imagination process, or you're bringing your product managers along uh, with you as you go through that data science uh, process yourself. And I think you, you hit on a key point, and it was one that we uh, as a team had to learn painfully in the sense that I remember when we were first talking with end users who were mainly focused on the use of a foundational map. So you're going to have a satellite or overhead image. You're going to have some type of ML service run and create a, a projection of that map automatically as opposed to human beings manually annotating it. And we first sat down with uh, some of these end users and we said, all right, well, we use a modified F1 score. Here's our IOU buffer. Is that good enough for you? <laughs> and we had gave no explanation of what we were doing. And I, just, I still remember one of the meetings. The guy goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. This sounds interesting. <laughs> and, and so bringing them along for the conversation and then having their input uh, systematically over time is just a key thing. And it amazes me how much that still gets overlooked at times. I agree. And I mean, just understanding what data goes into the thing, more or less what's happening and what comes out the other end is something that data scientists should be able to explain about every piece of work they create and product managers should be able to absorb. Yeah, particularly in, in our world, so much of the conversation really in the last you know, six months to a year has been talking about the use of the vernacular human in the loop. So talking about how a person, whatever the role may be, interacts with an output from a, sh a machine learning model. And then uh, as you to one of your earlier examples, they validate it. And then uh, that validation is resubmitted back into the model. Figuring out just what that is. Uh, is something that is still pretty novel, and I think people are now finally starting to recognize that that's critical. No, I agree. Um, and I've also found that people are still surprised when the best approach to solving one of these problems is to have a human who does the validation. Um, and it often is the best approach today. Yeah, and you know, as we talk about sort of these models and having the human validate things from it, you also had a comment on tooling, right, which is in one of the areas you know we have spent a lot of time in is trying to build up sort of an open source ecosystem around areas that perhaps are applications that are perhaps not as uh, popular or those that are focused on. Yeah, so for us, cool. overhead uh, over, analyzing overhead imagery is one that we've spent a lot of time on, and I think one of the reasons it's not so popular is it's just it's inherently hard to work with. The data is complex. Uh, bringing in different data sources uh, can add you to amp up that level of complexity to the point where you'll have people looking for a cool project to say, I'm not going to, I'm going <laughs> to find something else. Going back to one of your other comments, how do you see, once you've had a group that has thought through how they want to integrate something, maybe do a prototype in their product, have their product manager and data science team integrated, how do you see uh, sort, of, sort of open source software maybe fitting into their tooling decisions 
And what do you think some of the comparative advantages are with them saying we're going to go kind of roll our own based on what we're seeing in the open source world as opposed to kind of looking at a proprietary solution? Right. Well, I mean, I think you just said there are three choices here. So one is we build our own thing. One is we work with a proprietary vendor. And the third is we work with open source. So really, um, it's generally a good idea if you cannot build something to not build it. So your goal should be to build (laughs) as little as possible um, because then you have to maintain and own as little as possible. Um, And I think enough has been written and said about that. So then your question is, okay, why open source? Um, And typically it comes down to the fact that with open source you have uh, control. So if the company goes out of business, you're not just suddenly stuck. But also you have transparency, you know how it works, you know why it works. Um, You often have a community of peers and peer organizations out there that are similarly investing in the same tooling. Um, And there are plenty of reasons to contribute there um, versus sort of working entirely in a proprietary space. And the last thing I'll say on that is that in this space in particular, um, it's often quite possible that um, that it's nearly impossible to build a proprietary solution that's as high quality as what you could build yourself or what could exist in the open source community. Um, and that has to do with the availability of data, the quality of that data, the management of it. Um, and so it is a decision that, you know, you, you can't just say there's one right answer for everything. I'm not that sort of religious person. Um, but I am a huge fan of open source wherever it's possible to use it in the workflow um, because of all of those advantages. And something you just said, I think, is worth like really highlighting that a lot of the time open source tools are better uh, than something that could be generated in a proprietary uh, context. How do you think, um, how do you see open source tools uh, kind of progressing in the next five or ten years <laughs> in terms of their their role in the community, their role in in proprietary uh, products j- developed by companies versus things that are developed um, uh, and either commoditized or, or just used internally. <laughs> You're a fan of these, like, predict the future yeah, type yeah. questions. Like, I feel like I'm going to be held to this. This is only on the Internet, yeah. so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a good question. I think uh, you used the keyword here already, which is commodities, in that um, particularly for technical capabilities that are largely commoditized, open source is a fantastic solution. Um, and that means that this is a piece of your technical stack where you are not inventing anything new. It's usually a building block to something where you are inventing something new or you're running something uniquely interesting from your own data on top of it. Um, and so that's an area where you can look for dramatic improvement in open source. And, and the, the edge of commoditization in our space moves rapidly. Um, so, you know, even five years ago, we had very few, say, commodit- there was no commoditized deep learning libraries or capabilities. And now today we have multiple things to choose from, all of which are quite robust and can run in production. Um, and you could say, well, why? Um, and it's because the the capability itself is not the competitive differentiator for anyone who's supporting and using it. And so it makes sense that that has become something that is commoditized. The other thing that happens when the, something sort of meets that uh, set of criteria is that it becomes accessible. So the cost for using it may reduce by multiple orders of magnitude, and suddenly you get a lot of creativity and really interesting stuff that can be built on top of it. 
and to to kind of close it out, you know, it, the adoption of, of these technologies that we're talking about today, they, they really can't be adopted wide scale without expectation of, of proper use. And and this is something that, you know, we're, we're obviously seeing a lot in the news now. I know you and several others recently released a book on ethics and data science. And I think one of the, the really cool takeaways from that was, was that organizations, regardless of what the project is, they need to make sure that the data sets they're working with are fair and representative. You know, th- uh, do you see or how can organizations kind of work to rigorously benchmark their data sets? And perhaps more importantly, is do you see that as common practice today? Or is this still something that's kind of new for a lot of people to think through? Yeah, I mean, so this is a very short and free book. So I hope you'll forgive me a small pitch for it um, that I wrote with DJ Patil and Mike Lukides. Uh, and you can find it for free on the internet. Um, But the reason we wrote this was because we felt like there was a lack of resources at the time for practitioners. Um, So a lot of folks in the academic community, um, a lot of folks in the critical community, but nobody really telling the person who has hands to keyboard, who's looking at some data, how they do this well. And all we pose in this book is are some very simple changes to the typical data science process, like places where you can ask these questions and a little bit of a you know tool or two for asking them well, um, just because it is not common practice. Okay. And this, uh, we wrote this, um, it would be a year and a half ago now, and so I think the conversation has progressed dramatically in the community, which is fantastic. Um, I think that we're even having yeah. this conversation is great. Um, but I don't think if you you know were to pluck a random data scientist out of their you know comfy seat and look at what they're doing on their laptop that they would be deeply asking themselves uh, questions about bias in their training data that may be magnified through the machine learning process or figuring out how to do testing of the resulting artifact that they create such that bias that may have crept in there can be accounted for. Um, And so, no, I don't think it's common practice. I do think that there are some really simple common sense things you will do if you're thinking about it and asking those questions as part of the process. And I do think it is in this moment uh, our responsibility as people doing this work to start to change the practice Um, in the same way that, you know, 20 years ago, uh, not every software engineer thought it was important to write tests and now everybody does. We have to now create tests and data science for these sorts of problems wherever it's possible to do so. Yeah, and just even in our you know domain, just we have we've been asked, how do you know the data set or the data that you are open sourcing is uh, geographically representative? And that's something that you know we can just look and say, hey, we need cities that don't look like each other or that are in different seasons or have different look sure. angles or things. But if you were to go one step further and say, well, how can I measure right? It, how uh, if there's bias or something like that? That's something we're just now, really in the last six months to a year, have been exploring. And even for us, we're just in a bounded problem. I imagine if you were to expand this out between live data that's running in production, that's a lot harder problem to unpack. So it's an important topic. Yeah, it really is. And something else this ties into, which we could, again, do probably more than one podcast episode on. But, we got time um, today, Nick. Yeah, Go. thanks. Uh, <laughs> is the discussion around explainability and uh, understanding how how models are getting you to, to where you're at, right? And so um, 
something that we've thought about a little bit is how, uh, like, how should we define explainability? What information do we actually need? Um, say a product manager, a senior executive, or a, a consumer to know about how how a model's coming to uh, to the conclusions that it's coming to. What are your thoughts in terms of how that how that conversation's starting to develop and, and where it should go? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is starting to develop, which is great. Um, at Fast Forward Lab several years ago, we did a bunch of work on interpretability and explainable AI um, is still something we're very interested in. Um, the intuition here is that, you know, models can be black boxes because they are some mathematical compression. They can also be black boxes because somebody just doesn't want to tell you how it works. Even if it's a white box model, most products don't expose how it works anyway. Um, and so there, there are many questions here. So on a technical level, there's a ton of research into systems where you essentially permute inputs, look at how outputs change, and infer with statistical rigor which features um, are impactful in the decision. But these things do require, they're not perfect. Um, there are other ways to approach this too now. Um, but even on the product side, uh, there's no clear expectation of UI features around explainability. Um, some folks who are doing it are cheating, which is fine from a product point of view, um, but not necessarily fine if somebody's going to make a big life decision based on the data. Um, and so I guess this is a long way of saying that it is an active area of research, certainly in the academic community, also in industry, and it's an active area of research from an algorithmic point of view, as well as a product UI and sort of consumer expectation point of view. So I don't have all the answers for you, but it's something I do remain very interested in. So I, last question for me, and I'm gonna take the mantle from Nick, and I'm gonna ask you to predict the future, or at least, <laughs> or at least give a hot take. Uh, okay. we'll, we'll take either one. But given the importance of having a fair and representative data set that is robust and, and, and growing, we've seen in sort of conversation in both the public sector and in the private sector, sort of a, a conversation around having a much more uh, robust national level data strategy. It's a lot of times uh, during the past administration this focused on oh, the government just releasing more data sets to industry for them to do work. Mm -hmm. And this has kind of uh, come again. This is this topic sort of sped up again. I'm curious. Do you think there'd be some utility in in, in revisiting that strategy and having the, perhaps the government be more involved in getting some more public data sets out and available, so we can start addressing other applications that perhaps are just underserved or ignored due to lack of data sets that are that are easily accessible. I certainly think that it is worth having a national strategy around making data available. Um, it is also worth having standards on how we expect people to practice around that data, and that is a point, a place where the government could be very influential. Um, just to say, you know, if you're using this data, we expect you to adhere to these sorts of standards of practice. Um, and I certainly think there's plenty of economic value to be created by creating and, and releasing data in areas where perhaps there were publicly data poor. Um, so that is something that I think would be very interesting. I would love to see that happen. And do you think, do you think just based on all your experiences that as an effort like that would get momentum that perhaps more corporations would be contributing data sets that perhaps they've held historically proprietary as there's more momentum around perhaps certain areas of focus or research? 
Maybe. I mean, I have been fairly disappointed by the lack of corporate data sharing. And, and, you know, it comes down to a few things. Again, this is my opinion, but one of them is that there's very little benefit to a company to share data, even if there may be a public benefit, and there's a ton of liability. Um, And so it's very hard to get companies to do a lot of work um, when they're all they're doing is taking on liability. They're not taking on any benefit. Um, and then the second piece is that um, even in areas that are not competitive differentiators, you might say, okay, well, security data in financial services is something that everyone should share um, because, you know, at, at least as far as I know, most of the banks are not differentiating on their unique digital security, so maybe they should. Um, but even there, it's done in these sort of private consortiums with tons of uh, legal and technical protections around uh, ensuring minimum liability. And so until we can solve that liability problem, I don't think we're going to see a lot of companies just saying, hey, I've got this data set. Why don't you play with it? Um, which is unfortunate, um, but it's not one where I see a clear solution. Maybe you do. No, I mean, even in just in our experience, it's it's been... Uh, great to see all of our the corporate partners across SpaceNet be able to contribute data or related work on those data. But it has been just a journey for us just to even figure out the licensing piece over the last couple of years. Where when we when we first started, it was a somewhat restrictive license, and very quickly we learned from mainly commercial companies, but some other other groups as well, to say this is great. I can't touch those data because right. it could potentially. Uh, throw off my product development. So as a result, until you make this a more permissive license uh, and allow me to do what I need to do, I'm not going to touch it. And Mm -hmm. so just that alone uh, for something that's very targeted has just taken us a fair amount of time to unpack uh, from a legal perspective. Yeah, and I mean, uh, something that we've, I think, finally started to see recently is some smaller startups who are whose primary business is going to be providing data um, are starting to realize that if you release a small subset of it um, or a small piece of data under a super permissive license that you can then um, uh, allow people to develop products around it and develop and and that can increase the value of your business. And so hopefully that uh, will continue. Well, and the lovely thing about that is that startups really uh, don't care about liability. They have nothing to lose. Yes. So they can do that. Well, Hillary, this has been a, a great uh, conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thank you very much to both of you. Well, thank you. This has been great. Thanks, Ryan. And then uh, special thanks to Rich and the Hangar Studio teams here in New York City. Thanks. Take care. Space Club rule number two. You got to pay your tax, just not every day. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also a shout-out to Hardcast Media 
uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening and take care.